Now let us direct our attention to Psalm 15. This is the shortest psalm thus far in the canon. Does that mean Uncle Jared will be a little shorter winded today? I don't know. Wouldn't wager on that. We'll see. It's the psalm that is actually in its content most like Psalm 1 of all the other psalms that we looked at in terms of its drawing a contrast from the blessed between the one who is blessed and those who are cursed, as it were. You remember, if you were here when we looked at Psalm 1 about 18 months ago, we considered the man of God, the one who is in, who is with God, and the one who is opposed or on the outs with God. And there were character traits there. We run into that same thing again in Psalm 15, where in the context of the worship of and rich communion with the true and the living God, David is drawing a contrast, immediately speaking, with the fool that we met with in verse 1 of Psalm 14. And if you were here last week, we noted something that really bears repeating because I think it's the most important aspect of biblical anthropology, this idea of natural man being a fool. By that we mean that he is in and of himself morally unacceptable to God. And that is a declaration, as we saw, that he makes from his heart. I said that in the Hebrew originally it reads, No God. And it's a declaration because the desire in his heart is not to embrace God, but to dismiss him. And we noted how it is that so often modern day atheists will claim their disbelief is the result of a lack of compelling evidence or intellectual arguments. But you see, Adam himself shoots a hole right through that because he was with God. God was with him in the garden. He heard the voice of God. And Adam's declaration as he ate the forbidden fruit and thus declared no God, he meant by that, I don't want anything to do with this God that's present with me. He didn't need evidence that God existed. God was there. It's a dismissal of the God who is there as opposed to a heart's desire for Him. Well, now what we have is the one who by the grace of God is turned in the other direction and longs for God. They've been transformed in their hearts, and they are after God, and long to be what He would have them to be, as they would worship Him and have communion with Him that is acceptable to Him. So let's now hear the Word of God. Psalm 15, a Psalm of David, verses 1 through 5. Lord, who may dwell in Your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy hill? He whose walk is blameless and who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from his heart and has no slander on his tongue, who does his neighbor no wrong and casts no slur on his fellow man, who despises a vile man but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps his oath even when it hurts, who lends his money without usury and does not accept a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he bless the preaching of it. Let's look to him in prayer. Lord, we come before you and we are humbled 
by the truth of your word. We are thankful for it because we know that by your power, the Spirit searches us and knows us. And we ask that in the coming moments that by these truths of your word that you would do some excavation of your own in our being, that we may examine ourselves, and that we may have a renewed longing to be who you would have us to be, to be marked by godliness, to be characterized by the traits of those whom the one we meet at this table this day and commune with worked to make acceptable to you. Would you do this for your glory and for our good? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of months ago, I watched a very good documentary on the life and ministry of Billy Graham. Some of you have probably seen it, and there are probably multiple such productions out there. And I think the part that ministered to me the most in watching this was the time when Dr. Graham himself, several years ago in an interview, was talking about one of the early series of evangelical meetings that were held in Modesto, California in 1948. And this was at the time where the team of men working around Billy Graham began to see that this thing could really take off and become something they had never really anticipated it to be. And one evening, Billy Graham asked the members of the team to go back to their respective rooms and to spend some time in Scripture and to pray and to come up with a list of characteristics or value commitments that they believed that any evangelical team of crusaders ought to be known for. He wanted them to consider what impression they would give the world and what boundaries they would set as they moved forward and as the ministry grew in terms of their own ethics and their own personal conduct. And they did so. And they got together the following morning and they discussed these things and they prayed, and they came up with five items that these men were going to commit themselves to. They adopted it there, and it became known as the Modesto Manifesto. And it marked these men for nearly 60 years. What were they? We will never touch the money. The money will be handled and we will be accountable to our bookkeepers. Secondly, we will never be alone with a woman who is not our wife. Thirdly, we will never lie. We will always tell the truth. Fourthly, we will never speak ill of anyone. And we will seek to have joy when people are in our company. And fifthly, we will commit ourselves to working with the local church and will not seek to replace it in our mutual request for the furtherance of the gospel. There is a sense, my friends, in which Psalm 15 calls for us if I can say it this way, to go thou and do likewise. 
Every one of those items, directly or indirectly, could have come right out of Psalm 15. Now, as I read this a moment ago, you might have thought, well, this doesn't really apply to me. I mean, I'm not dealing with usury, and I'm not in a position to uh, accept, much less offer a bribe. So what does this have to do with me? Well, maybe not, but the principles that we're going to extract behind these truths very much do apply to us. And what a blessing it is to have an opportunity to open God's Word and to think about godly character. I want to say a couple things by way of preliminary introduction before we dive into the psalm proper. First of all, character is something that we very much need to consider important and take stock of in our own hearts as we look at our lives and as we consider the world in which we are living today. The idea of living as becomes a follower of Jesus, which is the words out of our book of church order that all of you who are communicant members of this church vowed to do when you joined. Uh, That is something that we are called to do by our God so that the world might know what is right, what is righteous altogether, as those who have received the blessing of God in salvation and had our hearts that were once hard, transformed and softened and conformed to Him and to His desires. So often we find ourselves making excuses for a lack of or deficiency in character, do we not? Mainly because of gifted people or people who are highly charismatic. I mean, how many times have you heard it? Oh yeah, yeah, he struggles with womanizing, but boy, he's a good preacher. Boy, he's such a brilliant professor It's too bad that he has that struggle of slipping off to Vegas three or four times a year and losing money. How many times do we hear these kinds of things as as if that's okay? We are terrible about this, my dear friends, in the Reformed community. We have made an idol of knowledge and of intelligence. How many times have I heard of a young man coming along and I hear of him, oh, he's so bright, this is going to be the smartest person that Westminster Seminary has turned out in a generation. Oh, we've got this young man coming out of Covenant Seminary and he's so smart. Well, don't get me wrong, I love smart people. We learn from intelligent people whom God has gifted and given knowledge. But we idolize these things. And when we do, you see, we create circumstances in which we are enabled not to deal with our sin, to slip it under the rug. And it builds up. And over time, we have problems. Yes, there are few things that could be as important that we consider as those who are gods than what it means to have godly character. I know we can't read providence. I understand there are wicked people who have longevity upon the earth. But I'll tell you, and I think you would be hard-pressed to find an instance where this is not the case, but every person I have known who has had longevity on the earth, who was used of God, large-scale or small, in some significant way, without exception, was possessive of sterling character. Translation, it's not happenstance that George Beverly Shea on Billy Graham's team went to heaven in 2011 at the age of 104. 
or that his announcer, Cliff Barrows, went to heaven last September at the age of 93, or that Billy Graham sits this morning confined to his private room in Montreat, North Carolina, three months shy of his 99th birthday. Don't tell me that God doesn't bless character. And how desperately we, we need to see this. My, my, my heart cries out for the day in which there is a premium placed back on such things. And a commitment that requires sacrifices that cost, as we see indicated in the passage that I just read. The second thing I want to say is this. Lest there be any misunderstanding. We need to understand that what we're talking about here are not engagements to win acceptability with God, but rather character traits that reflect the reality of having been made acceptable to God. We're not talking about legalism here. Legalism is self-justification. Legalism is the attempt to win and or maintain the favor of God by what one does or does not do. That isn't what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is the essence of conformity to the one who has died to make us his own to change us, to give us new character, to cause us to be known for things that it would have been impossible for us to be known for and by prior to His having converted us. Again, what an important thing to remember as we come to the Lord's table. Jesus hasn't just died to keep us out of hell. He has died to make us new. And as we take His righteousness upon us, as this greater David who comes from the line of the King of Israel who wrote this song, lo, these many years ago, He has worked on our behalf not merely to save us from the judgment of God, but to cause us to be changed into people who bear His mark and who take on His character. That's what it means to be Christ-like. To have His mind, as Paul calls for in Philippians chapter 2. To have His compassion, His commitment to the truth, and doing the will of His Father regardless of what it costs and ultimately cost Him His life. And you know, vital union with Christ by grace through faith may well one day cost us ours. But we are created and we are redeemed to be known as the acceptable to God in Jesus by certain things. Now, as we look at this, you'll recognize this is not an exhaustive list. This is what we might call a representative sample of godly character. There are other passages, particularly in the Old Testament, that are similar to this, and they usually follow, as does this one, a question at the outset. For example, if you look forward a few psalms to Psalm 24 in the third verse, you see the psalmist asks, Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? And then he begins to give you a slightly different series of godly characteristics, one with clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. 
the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 33, verses 14 through 16. It says, The sinners in Zion are terrified, trembling grips the godless. Who can dwell with the consuming fire? Who can dwell with everlasting burning? He who walks righteously and speaks what is right, who rejects gain from extortion and keeps his hand from accepting bribes, who stops his ear against the plots of murder and shuts his eyes against contemplating evil, this man will dwell on the heights. There are several places we see this. Sometimes it's just a, a summary. It's a, a concise statement, as in Micah 6.8. What does the Lord require of men? justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. So we would do well to do a study and then call all of these things of which the Spirit speaks through the Word that describes the one who is acceptable to God. But here he gives us a a, a slate of six things in six couplets that describe what the acceptable to God are known for. And again, it comes in the context of, of, of worship. Notice the questions posed in verse 1. Uh, Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy hill? There's a, a temporary aspect or temporal aspect to fellowship with God and an eternal one. When he says, who may dwell in your sanctuary, that word in the Hebrew dwell is sojourn. Who may sojourn in your sanctuary? And after all, that's how Israel worshipped. They were nomadic. They traveled around, and in their midst was the tent of meeting, and they worshipped the Lord there. Who will sojourn with God? Who may have the privilege of traveling through life and on a regular basis worshipping with His people, but not only so, who may live on your holy hill? Who may be fixed eternally in heaven? That's Zion, which as we've seen several times before, is an indication that what is in view there is the eternality of where God is and being fixed in eternity with Him in that place that He has prepared for His own. And say, who may worship you here? And then who will, to borrow the words of the psalmist in Psalm 61, 4, dwell in your tent forever? And then he begins in verse 2a and continues through verse 5a with these six observances that come from six couplets. Now, psalms, the psalms are poetry. But what we have here in these verses, beginning at verse 2, is a very pronounced exhibition of Hebrew parallelism. It's the most prominent form of this that we've seen. And I want to walk through these six items with you um, fairly quickly and make observations about them. And just to give you a summation up front, what we see about the man of Psalm 15 is very simply who he is, how he speaks, what he does, what he values, how he relates, and how he prioritizes. Those are the overarching themes of godly character that emerge from these specifics. Let's look at each of them. First of all, the first couplet we find in verse 2a shows us really who the man of God is. Who the one who has been delivered from foolishness unto the wisdom of salvation is. He walks blamelessly and he does what is righteous. 
This means that this is one who is known very generally to be godly and virtuous across the spectrum of life. He doesn't have what we might call a major weakness. Oh, he's a sinner, yes. He's made mistakes, yes. He has to repent and ask others to forgive him, yes. But he's not one like the one of whom I spoke a moment ago, where his life is stellar, but there's just this one glaring department in his life that he just can't have victory over, and and we attempt to excuse it. No, this is Mr. Consistency here. He's known publicly and privately as one who, by God's grace, carries the mantle of godliness, and you know it. He does not do what is offensive to God, as God's sanctified power is at work within him. He's a man who is held in good repute in all areas of his existence and of his influence. Blameless here uh, means wholesome, solid. We, we use that word. Oh, he's a solid guy. Well, this is the kind of person that we ought to be talking about. One who walks before the Lord and is above reproach. Now, you notice he begins with a positive and then moves in the second half of the couplet, David does, to a negative. Who does, I mean, let's see. Who's, yeah, no, that's another, there's another positive there. He, he's walking blamelessly and he does what is righteous. The negatives come later. He does the right thing. Not only does he not do what's wrong, but he's known to do what's right. And he knows something of the content, I would suggest, of James 2.18. He would say to you, show me your faith without works, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. You see, he's consistent in life in that his character features not only not doing what God expressly forbids, but by doing what God expressly requires. He's known for using his time and his gifts and his resources to serve to do the Lord's work, and thus he is known as one who is acceptable to God, not because of those works, but on the basis ultimately of Christ's righteousness as seen through the works that he does. So he doesn't do what's wrong, he does what is right. Secondly, what he says, or how he speaks, moving to the second couplet in verse 2a, and then in verse uh, 2b, rather, and then in verse 3a. He speaks the truth from his heart and has no slander on his tongue. He speaks the truth, and the psalmist is quick to note that this is from the heart, again, in contrast of the man of Psalm 14.1. This one does not, in the depths of his being, reject God. This one, in the depths of his being, accepts God, and therefore is all about the truth of God as He has revealed it to him. He speaks the truth from his heart. It comes out of who he is. And it doesn't mean that he just doesn't tell you lies. But there's more meaning to this. The the idea of him speaking the truth is that every time you talk to this person, you know you're going to get something that is trustworthy. Uh, Think of Paul's words to Timothy and Titus in the pastoral epistles. There are five times in those three letters that Paul precedes what he's saying by identifying what he's saying as a trustworthy saying, a reliable 
Bible saying, here is a trustworthy saying, 1 Timothy 1.15, worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who am I am the worst. If you start to unpack that, you begin to see that what Paul is doing for both Timothy and for Titus at one point in Titus is to speak to them in terms that help them relate to the cultures in which they are laboring in the church. Titus was planting a church on the island of Crete. Timothy was laboring in the midst of the church at Ephesus, a more established church. And not unlike in our day, they too liked sound bites, short little snippet sayings. And we have those in our day, and they come at us with all manner of falsities, do they not? You can be as great as you want to be. Let's make this happen. I mean, our our New Age world is just replete with these self-centered mottos that we take through life. And what Paul is giving to those younger men is, look, you're going to hear all these spoken about, but when you do, you counter it with a, a, a little set of snippets that I'm giving you. And here's the first one. Christ Jesus came into the world sinners to save. Tell them that. Give them your own life mantra. Put this bumper sticker wherever you wish to put it. Because they didn't have cars then. You get the point. That's what he's talking about here. This one who is blameless, every time he opens his mouth, he's giving you something you can take to the bank. This is a faithful saying. This saying won't lie to you. It won't cheat on you. It's faithful. It's utterly and totally reliable. We might say of this one that his lips are filled with messages from God. He's committed to the truth, and so therefore he cannot but speak that which is trustworthy. Now, the second part of this couplet makes for an interesting juxtaposition. It says, he speaks truth from the heart and has no slander on his tongue. Here we have a comparison not only with the fool of Psalm 14.1, but also with those flattering deceivers that we met back in Psalm 12.2. Remember, we were looking at Psalm 12, and we talked about how the deceivers, those with syrupy lips, those who said things to win people over, they were saying what the people they were trying to win over wanted to hear in order that they might get them in a position to manipulate them and get leverage on them to use them for their purposes. But you see, when you are no longer that person, but you are a new creation, and your agenda becomes God's agenda, and you're all about truth as opposed to being about lies or whatever works for you, then the slander, the malicious speak, and the things that defame your neighbor are automatically taken care of. You see how simple that is. When you and I gossip, we are showing a reckless disregard for truth when we choose to speak it, whether it's true or not, because we want it to be, because it serves our purposes. Uh, The man of Psalm 15 is one whose purposes are the purposes of God. And so therefore, when he speaks to give truth and what is trustworthy, then there is a de facto elimination of anything that would be harmful to his neighbor. There's a removal of slander because there is no longer a carelessness about accuracy anymore. Thirdly, we have in 
verse 3b, the couplets, and these contain two negatives. He does no wrong to his neighbor and casts no slur on his fellow man. This is what he does or how he acts more accurately by virtue of what he doesn't do. Uh, This is an indication of what ought to characterize the general daily actions of the one who has godly character. Notice how he's moving. There's a, a bit of a flow here from the general to the specific. He deals with truth and then slander. And then what we have in verse 3a would be the next step after slander, doing wrong to the neighbor and casting a slur on his fellow man. could be within the body of Christ or without of the body of Christ for us, just any fellow man. David's using general terminology here, neighbor, as we would love our neighbors as ourselves. He does not do wrong to him, and he casts no slur upon such a one. Uh, That's probably the most complex phrase in the entire psalm in the Hebrew, trying to get a grip on that, what it means to cast a slur. But it's more than merely slandering. It's what we might call the result of slandering. And not only can it be damaging, it can be ruinous. To cast a slur, think of it this way. When someone's speech is slurred, what is that speech? It's unclear. When someone speaks to you and they're having difficulty speaking, maybe the boy, they don't know what they say, you don't know what it means, and, and there's confusion, there's doubt. What David's talking about here is slandering and wronging the neighbor eventually does that to their lives. You look at them, and because doubt is entered in, and because aspersions have been cast, you begin to see that it's unclear who they really are. And that's the result of the damage. And notice the word cast, as if to cast a spell. It's not just a word being spoken or a few actions. But their life, as a result of your wronging them, becomes blanketed with this uncertainty and lack of clarity and damage to their name. And it harms them significantly. It can be destructive. My mind veered in the direction of trials in American history as I was thinking about this this past week. You know, the longest and most expensive criminal trial in American history was the McMartin Day School sex abuse trials in the 80s this daycare center was about five miles from where I now live. And if you investigate that thing, it it is the most unparalleled sequence of events you could ever read about in the history of American jurisprudence. There was a mania that blanketed that, that community. And $15 million and seven and a half years later, there was not one indication that any child had ever been harmed there. And there were all manner of other evidences that rose. There were child psychologists and social workers who had coached the children on what to say. 
the defense attorney held up a picture of a man or a child and said, did this man abuse you? And he said, yes, and he showed it to the jury, and it was a, it was a picture of actor Chuck Norris. I mean, just crazy stuff. And in 1990, broke and totally destroyed in good name. Virginia McMartin and her daughter sat in the courtroom wailing, and her daughter said to her mother, they've taken it all. We don't have anything left. That's what it means to cast a slur. Or former Labor Secretary Raymond Donovan being set up for larceny and fraud and then acquitted in 1986. And he's going to the office to be processed out, and he asks someone, which office do I go to to get my reputation back? That's what it is to cast a slur. See, it's not just bad-mouthing and saying something mean, but it's graduating unto destruction. And the man of God, the woman of God, as it were, doesn't do that. But they're concerned with the converse of that. Not doing wrong to the neighbor means doing right to the neighbor. Not casting a slur on your fellow human being. What it means is doing everything you can and ordering your life to be known for one who works among all men to have them see the truth and embrace the truth and be brought into the fold of God's people. And be told, welcome to the family. You too, like me, in Jesus, are acceptable to God. And and we have communion. We are one. This is one who spends his days acting and doing in a manner that says he's all about the ingathering of the elect. And having rich and true and authentic fellowship, not only with God, but with God's people. I I realize that this is risky to think about, and I certainly don't want to be irreverent, but have you ever stopped to think about how God must feel when He looks down from heaven having sent His only begotten perfect Son to be the sacrifice for the sins of His people to reconcile them to Him And he views all of us who have been made recipients of such a great salvation and we don't love each other. We don't serve each other. How offensive that must be to him that we would be about anything other than desiring what Jesus desired for us when he prayed the last prayer of his life. And in John 17, verses 20 through 23, made it known that he desired that we all be one, as he and the Father are one. That, that's what the one with godly character works toward. It doesn't move in the destructive direction, but in the edifying and establishing direction that builds up the saints and places the self to be an instrument of God in the growth of the body of God. Well, fourthly, we come to what he values. Verse 4a, who despises a vile man but honors those who fear the Lord. It's as if here he's stepping back for a moment. He's gone from speech to action, and now he's talking about what this person is known for 
by virtue of whom he regards, who he holds in high esteem. You ever think about that? Values don't exist in a vacuum, but it says so much about what we hold dear by the ones that we profess to hold a high esteem for, or we might think of as our heroes. Notice the contrast here. This one despises a vile man. That probably means one who has been rejected by God because of his sin. And so therefore, we are to reject what God rejects, not out of hatred, but because we know that bad company corrupts good morals. And we know that it is not honoring to God to esteem those who are known for evil, but rather honor those who fear the Lord. I can look back over my life and some of the instances that you have shared from your lives with me. There were people who were great men and women of God and you esteemed them and by virtue of your talking about them and describing those things, I've begun to see what's important to you. We see what the man of God values by those he holds up and honors and those to whom he does not ascribe such honor. I love the story of May 13, 1947, when the Brooklyn Dodgers were playing the Cincinnati Reds at the old Crosley Field in Cincinnati. It was about a month after Jackie Robinson had broken the color barrier. And the Dodgers took the field there in the bottom of the first, and the fans were giving Jackie Robinson a pretty hard time. They were being pretty nasty. Pee Wee Reese at that point left his position at shortstop and went over and put his arm around his new friend who was playing first base that day. Pee Wee Reese was a native of Kentucky, a place rife with racial strife, and some of his extended family members had made the trip not too far to Cincinnati to see him play that day. And he goes over to first base, and Jackie Robinson is looking at Pee Wee Reese like, what are you doing? And he puts his arm around him, and he says to him, I have some family members up there in the stands, and I need them to see what kind of man I am. I need them to know what I'm made of. You see the point? When we see character being worked in someone, they become those whom we highly regard, and that speaks to what we value. That's what the man of Psalm 15 is about here. Fifthly, how he relates. We begin to get into monetary issues a little bit later, but we begin by the matter of oath-keeping or basically the maintenance of one's integrity. We don't often take oaths today, but he says he keeps his oath even when it hurts. Uh, For us, this would be, for example, if you have entered into a uh, contractual relationship with someone, you need to honor that. If you said you're going to do something, you need to do it, even if it costs you something. I was home from college one time at Christmas, and I drove my mother's 1985 Delta 88 Oldsmobile to choir practice, and when I came back, There was not as much room as I thought there was in the driveway, and I didn't swing wide enough, and I hit the left part of the back bumper of my father's Toyota pickup truck and bashed out the front right headlight of my mother's Olds. 
My dad called the insurance man the next day. He said, oh, yeah, policy covers that. When you run into yourself, you do something to yourself, it's covered. Just go down and have it fixed, and we'll take care of it. Well, my dad had it fixed, and guess what? He went back to the agent. Uh, well, you know, I talked to my supervisor, and I reread the policy, and technically we're not supposed to pay for that, and blah, 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 blah. And my father said to him, Jim, you said this is what you were going to charge me, and that's what I'm going to pay you. I'm, I'm not going to pay you this extra. He, he forced this upon this man. He honored it. That's, that's an example of this. When, when it costs you, when you might lose money, so be it if you maintain your integrity. Keep your word. Be who you are. Mean what you say. Say what you mean. Do what you said you would do. Don't do what you said you wouldn't do. It's just that simple. How he relates. Begin to establish relationships with people whereby they see something in your actions of what they've known you to come to value. And then finally, how this one prioritizes. This too involves people, but it shows the priority of what is just in the world for people trumping greed. That's basically all this is about. It's grace over greed. It's not you being driven by one dollar more or one item more than you have already, but it's being able to forfeit for the good of your neighbor. There were laws, as you know, in Israel, per Leviticus chapter 25 and Deuteronomy chapter 23, where it was forbidden for Israelites to charge fellow Israelites interest if they had loaned them money. This was to prevent those who had more money from taking advantage of those who had less money. He who lends money without usury and does not accept a bribe against the innocent. In their systems, judicially speaking, this was quite a problem in the ancient world. There were those who were willing to accept bribes, particularly if they were in poverty, to put away people who were charged with a crime, but it was known that they really had not committed the crime. These kinds of shenanigans and these kinds of inner workings that involve money and are such a temptation and bring out the reality that the root, the love of money really is the root of all evil. And the man of Psalm 15 stays away from this lest his life be pierced through with many griefs. And so there you have it. Who he is, basically. How he speaks. What he does by virtue of what he doesn't do. What he's known for in his value system by virtue of who he esteems and holds high and recognizes and honors. And those who fear the Lord or righteousness. And those who do what they say they will do. They keep their commitments even if it costs them something monetary or material. And those who do not take advantage of those who have not been blessed as you have and you do not engage in illegalities in order to manipulate the life situations of other people for your advantage. You see how through these specifics emerge very general truths that should apply to those who have experienced grace. And then he ends the psalm by really giving us more of an answer to the question than we were probably originally anticipating as we exited verse 1. He who does these things. Now some of them, as you've seen, have been negative. 
So by he who does these things, what he obviously means is who is characterized by the whole of what is good and true and righteous within these things that have been laid out. He who does these things will never be shaken. Notice how that's passive. The question initially is, who can keep company with God? Who can worship Him? Who can live with Him forever? The one known as accepted by virtue of their exhibiting these characteristics, and they will never be shaken. Not will never shake. Not will never shake themselves. Never be shaken. That is, and we see as we've seen with several Psalms, we're coming to the end again, and the concluding matter is, the security that we have in the Lord as He keeps His own. As Dr. James Montgomery Boyce says, this one will never be shaken loose. And so God is very kind to say, not only do you have intimate and sweet and meaningful and eternal fellowship with Me, but I have you and nothing will pluck you from My hand. You will not be removed from fellowship with me. What encouragement. Again, an emphasis upon the fact that salvation is is all of God. And you can't say that of someone who has somehow worked their way to the favor of God. No, this can only be said of those who have been granted such justification. Now, Let me say a few things in conclusion before we hasten on to the Lord's table. And I alluded to this briefly at the outset, but I want to revisit it for just a moment. We recognize that Jesus died that we might be conformed to His image. That means that we may be known in our humanity for that by which He was known in His He came into this world fully human. He he took on our flesh. He took on our skin in order to take on our sin. And in so doing, we need to see that ultimately He is the acceptable man. He's the man of Psalm 15, is He not? He is the one who is about truth only and has blamelessness, and does what's righteous. He is the one who speaks the truth from his heart, and does not have slander on his tongue. He is the one who does not wrong his neighbor, but came and walked the earth and showed so much mercy and compassion and righteousness toward anyone who came to him. He is not a one who is concerned about his name. He was concerned about the honor of his father and obedience to him. And he gave everything. He didn't take advantage of anyone. You see how he alone ultimately fits the bill that is here? And if he who hung upon the cross was made to be sin that we who are sinners might become the righteousness of God in Him. As we come to this table, we need to think about the fact that union with Him means that by His grace, we take on the characteristics that He exhibited as a human on this earth. That's what it means to become like Him. That's what it means to be conformed to His image. Michael Brown says Jesus didn't die 
to save us to sin. He died to save us from sin. That encapsulates in the idea a different way of living. So we have to make a choice for what is right. And this is a prime opportunity for us to, as we gather around the table of the Lord together, to repent of our sins and to renew our commitment to not only communing with God, but communing with one another in purity as He would work that. You know, another name that those men gave to the Modesto Manifesto was the choice for righteousness. And that is the question before us this day, my dear friends and brothers and sisters, as the blood-bought, blood-washed children of God in Christ, will we choose to do what's right? Or will we continue to coddle and nurse within the depths of our souls those besetting sins that ultimately do nothing but cast slurs all over this fallen world. John Flavel, the Puritan, said, Jesus Christ intended when He opened your eyes that your eyes should direct your feet. Light is a special help to obedience, and obedience is a singular help to increase your light. May we desire light as we come to our Savior's table and as we rest in Him may we anticipate that it will be said of us that glorious truth of 1 John 1.7 that we walked in the light as He is in the light and have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus His Son has purified us from all sins. May God apply it to our hearts. Amen.